Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman. We're visiting today with Anna Torres, Kenyon Zimmer, and Eilat Brin. Anna is an assistant professor of comparative literature at the University of Chicago and the author of Horizons, Blossoms, Borders Vanish, Anarchism, and the Yiddish Literature, due out February 2024 with Yale Press. Kenyon Zimmer is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas at Arlington and author of the book Immigrants Against the State, Yiddish and Italian Anarchism in America. He was also a 2006 Steiner summer intern at the Yiddish Book Center. Ilet is the assistant professor of Judaic studies at the University of Hartford, where she holds the Philip D. Feltman Professorship in Modern Jewish History. Her first book, A Revolution in Type, Gender in the Making of the American Yiddish Press, was just released with New York University Press. Also joining us today is the Yiddish Book Center's biographer and editorial director, I've asked David to moderate today's conversation. I know firsthand that he's been eager for the release of the book that we're about to discuss um, and grabbed the advanced copy off my desk. So, well, actually not the advanced copy, the copy of the book itself. Um, welcome to you all. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you very much, Lisa. Uh, this is David Mazawa. Uh, I am hugely excited to be speaking with all of you, uh, a big fan of your work. Uh, individually, each of you, and very excited and have been eagerly awaiting this book with freedom in our ears that Anna and Kenyon, you have uh, co-edited. Um, and so I just want to start with the two of you, um, and prominent in your uh, introduction is the fact that you met 16 years ago at a summer language program at the Yiddish Book Center. So um, so we feel we have a stake in, you know, your careers in this book. And that meeting was clearly the start of a very fruitful collaboration. And it led, among other things, to the one-day conference at the Evo Institute in New York in, uh, I think it was 2019, um, that I came to that was packed out. And I can rarely remember an academic event that had such a sense of excitement and buzz about it. Um, and it was it was really extraordinary. And there was a sense in the room, uh, and I think amongst the two of you and the speakers, the other speakers, of this kind of private passion being brought into a wider conversation. Uh, and so I'd like you to just speak about the sort of, uh, in broad terms, about um, your book and, and uh, how you see your project of reclaiming the history of Jewish and indeed Yiddish anarchism, because the book is largely, but not exclusively, about Yiddish anarchism, how that project is playing in and sort of altering our sense of Jewish history. Well, thank you. Um, it is it is true that we met as interns at the Yiddish Book Center. And in fact, I recently found a snapshot that I had taken in the warehouse at the Yiddish Book Center of Kenyon holding up a copy of Freya Arbitzer Stima with a, with a big grin. So... Uh, yes, we we have um, where it's it's great to be back. Um, the, the leading uh, New York Yiddish anarchist newspaper for those who don't know it. Uh, yes, yes, it was uh, its title was uh, Free Voice of Labor. So yes, so speak, um, Anna or, or Kenyon. Also, please join us about you know this sense of reclamation that I think you both bring to your long involvement with the history of Jewish anarchism. Uh, absolutely, um, yeah, I think. The word used reclaiming is is definitely spot on. Um, I 
ended up at the Yidd at the Yiddish Book Center in 2006 um, as a graduate student, really digging into the history of anarchism in the United States more broadly, um, and finding that there was this huge gaping hole in the existing scholarship and literature about Yiddish-speaking Jewish anarchists who were clearly, um, by the first decade of the, the 20th century, the largest single segment of the anarchist movement in North America, but there was virtually no scholarship uh, in English in particular that had been written, uh, really delving into the very rich Yiddish source base. Um, so that's how I ended up in uh, yeah, in 2006 uh, at the Book Center meeting Anna, how this anthology ended up coming about after our own um, respective paths through graduate school and into academia. Um, and it's really the first volume of its kind. It's bringing together a bunch of new, exciting research in Yiddish and several other languages, uh, trying to really begin the process, right? This, is, this book isn't the final say by any means. This is really just a beginning of recovering and reclaiming this very wide-ranging and diverse history. And Anna, um, you you say uh, also in the introduction to the book, uh, a phrase that leapt out at me, anarchists look towards culture rather than the political party system as an engine of change. And I think to that one might add education. You know, your book is very wide-ranging. It's not um, just about politics. Just speak about the, the sort of range of the essays in the book. Uh, sure. Um, yes. So this question of rather than setting one's sights on um, participatory uh, uh, representative politics, there's a different idea about what representation might mean um, in the world of arts and culture, those becoming the sphere of transformation of the world. And um there is a period of uh, of Yiddish literature referred to as the proletarian poets, and it's sometimes seen as though that was the um, uh, a contained moment in literary historiography where uh, anarchist thought and working class culture um, was prominent. Um, and one of the projects of my work and of this book is of looking at anarchist um, the persistence of anarchist thought and activism uh, through the proletarian poets and after through labor romanticism and through modernism and through expressionism as well. So I don't posit anarchism as a singular moment in Yiddish literature, but I'm interested in this continued conversation um, for which the proletarian poets were, uh, were certainly very significant and uh, translation as an engine of thought and intellectual engagement is very significant um, for the anarchist press, as Ayala will also uh, speak to. And um, yes, exactly, thinking about a mode of transformation of the world in the present, which is not deferred uh, to after an election or after a revolution, but the kind of immediacy of cultural production um, that would um, that sense of urgency and almost a, a kind of hyper-present that art can embody. 
And and it's worth saying that, you know, there's a sort of parade of um, well-known and lesser well-known names in this book, Leon Trotsky, Emma Goldman, the gallerist Alfred Stieglitz, the painter Camille Pissarro. I think these are just some of the unexpected um, figures in the latter cases that, that you know, appear in the book. Um, it's, it's really wonderfully wide-ranging. Um, but Ayelet, let's, um, I want to look at your your contribution, which which in a way hits the sort of sweet spot of American um, Yiddish and Jewish anarchism in the early years of the 20th century. And it's part of your broader project of looking um, at the Yiddish press and especially issues of gender. And that's another theme that runs through this set of essays and, and this book as well. Um, but talk a bit about your um, exploration of the Freie Arbeiter Stimme, the uh, you know, this well-known Yiddish anarchist newspaper and the figure that you you highlight and reclaim in your essay, um, someone I came across in my um, interest in Yiddish culture in London, Shaul Janowski, because he comes to America from London, um, and somebody who has, again, not really been paid much attention in um, Jewish history and, and Yiddish, Yiddish um, historiography. Sure. So first, I was really honored that Anna and Kenyon invited me to contribute. Uh, I came to my interest in the Freie Arbeiterstimme uh, through this broader exploration of the Yiddish press that you talked about, especially in the United States. Uh, in addition to its politics, uh, the Freie Arbeiterstimme was known as a pretty premier venue for literature, especially poetry, but also short stories throughout its run, but especially uh, before the 1920s or so. Uh, and it had a particular reputation in a couple of different moments for uh, publishing work by men under female pseudonyms, whether knowingly or unknowingly. There's this great story in Josef Heiken's History of the Yiddish Press um, that apparently, uh, it's unclear exactly how true this is, uh, but uh, a poem would be rejected if it was submitted under a male name. And then when Yanovsky would see the same poem a couple of weeks later under a female name, he would turn to his staff and say, everyone should learn to write poetry from this woman. It's so great. Uh, and so that sort of got me to thinking about these newspapers and sort of the complexity of what's going on there in terms of politics and culture and gender. And when I was going through the archives of the Freie Arbeiterstimme in Amsterdam, I found this amazing letter from Emma Goldman, where she's thinking back on the translation politics specifically of the newspaper, what they decide to translate, how they decide to translate. And that felt like a really great window into the complexity of the Yiddish press as a whole, and also the political project of the Yiddish press. So the idea that these newspapers are translating a lot of their news coverage and a lot of their other material from other sources, especially the American mainstream press, and also using these sources as sort of models for thinking about what a newspaper should be in terms of politics, in terms of audience, and in terms of culture, and how all of those different parts don't really make a cohesive whole but are part of this broader sort of complexity of this sphere where there are lots of sort of uh, competing impulses uh, warring with each other on the pages of these newspapers. And one of the things that that I, I found um, fascinating about your paper is that, you know, as idealistic as a lot of these leading anarchist figures uh, were and, and, in, and indeed sort of are today, um, you know, they were not immune from feuds and arguments. And you yep. address the argument between Emma Goldman and Yanovsky over the paper's coverage of the assassination of President McKinley. Just just give us in a nutshell kind of that that whole story. Uh, so uh, par it's partly about uh, whether Yanovsky's sort of commitments in that moment 
to anarchism really held up, but it's also partly about the news sources that he was taking from in order to cover what was going on. So this according is, this to is Emma, 1901, right? Yes, in 1901. Uh, so Emma Goldman says that uh, Yanovsky was sort of slavishly following the party lines that were happening in the mainstream American press, especially the New York Times, and using that to gauge his coverage of what was happening in terms of the McKinley assassination and the fallout for the broader anarchist sphere. Uh, that's not exactly true, I found out, but he was definitely sort of using the mainstream press to gauge the mood of the country in the moment and to try to respond as it was going on. Um, and I'll just mention one other, um, maybe maybe um, Kenyon or Anna, you can you can speak to this. Um, one of the other individual chapters um, follows on from the book that kind of drew me into a fascination with with Jewish anarchism, which is Paul Average's book Anarchist Voices, which is essentially a sort of oral history, wonderful compilation of dozens of oral histories with elderly anarchists that he knew and met and and transcribed and so on. And there's a chapter in this book that is in a way, very much in that tradition, um, dealing with uh, the personal lives, political, sexual, cultural, of a, of a series of Jewish American women in the mid-century. Would, would one of you like to just um, speak a little bit about that chapter? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we were really delighted to be able to have that chapter by Elaine Leader um, included, especially because um, she was herself a uh, an earlier trailblazer in recovering some of this history. She wrote uh, a biography of the Jewish anarchist and labor organizer, um, Rose Pesada, um, that was published back in the, I think, early 90s. Um, yeah, and uh, so she is, or her, her chapter, I should say, is really an irreplaceable piece um, as it is based on these personal interviews she conducted uh, primarily in the 1980s um, with um, you know as Paul Average had, had done as well with these aging um, anarchist women uh, to be able to get at a lot of this very you know personal um, information about their how they blended politics and their personal lives and that's information that really is virtually impossible to recover in any way other than actual firsthand interviews. So being able to include that, to find a place for that research that Elaine did um, to reach the world in published form, um, I'm really, really happy we were able to do that. Yeah, it's it's the the whole sort of as a whole and individually the the essays are just uh, a wonderful give a sense of this extraordinary globalism and transnationalism of um, the the Jewish anarchists and their their alliances. Um, it's I, I think fair to say that one of the defining features of the movement was exactly that ability to to reach out and find allies. Anna, do you want to talk a bit about? Um, the sort of alliances that Jewish and Yiddish-speaking anarchists built across parties and across borders and indeed across languages. Uh, thank you. Yes. So you mentioned uh, Paul Averich and his work, Anarchist Voices. He also wrote Anarchist Portraits. And I think it's uh, something distinctive about anarchist historiography that there's 
often an attentiveness to the individual. And um, uh, if anarchism is uh, focused on the cultivation of comradeship in the present moment, then perhaps it's also a function of anarchist historiography to look at daily life and the and the individual and the oral history. And so I think our book's approach is very much in conversation with these other traditions of writing anarchist labor history with this attentiveness um, to uh to the you know to the mundane life of of labor. Um, so uh, yes, thank you for for noticing that. I think there is a, a continuum or a conversation there with Averich and other uh, anarchist labor historians. Um, so then, in terms of um, as you say, building coalition, um, language politics is a part of this. And um, on the one hand, the politics of Jewish anarchism is different from other movements such as Zionism, which places Hebrew as the central linguistic project or Bundism, which had a specific ideology attached to the Yiddish language. Jewish anarchists, uh, while perspectives uh, differed, of course, um, there was not a parallel attachment to the ideology of a singular language. There was um, an elevation of heterogeneity and that approach um, also led to uh, thinking about building coalitions with speakers of languages which are proximate. So in this case, um, we can think of uh, Yiddish anarchism and German anarchism being to some extent mutually intelligible. And there are accounts, for example, in Chicago of offices being shared around the period of Haymarket um, with German and Yiddish speakers um, because the German language is, was intelligible to Yiddish speakers. And so that created a kind of uh, linguistic intimacy there between Yiddish um, and German. And Devin Nahr's work actually currently is looking at um, Latino and uh, Sephardic uh, labor coalitions. So thinking in a different context about the um, intimacies and coalitions built between mutually intelligible languages spoken by immigrants. So this is not uh, particular only to the Yiddish and German case at all. Um, but there is something about this um, uh, openness to, um, to thinking multilingually and uh, the organizer, Rudolf Rocker, who was called the anarchist rabbi, he was known for being a non-Jew who edited um, uh, Yiddish anarchist newspapers in London in the 19, uh, 1920s and 30s. He was active. And he's often this is often seen as remarkable. But in fact, Rudolf Rocker was multilingual. He was um, living in East London and also working with Spanish refugees. So it was not a binary of English and Yiddish. It was Spanish and Yiddish being in relation to one another as well. So there's something particular about the, the love, the anarchist love of multilingualism that led to a kind of natural um, uh, or, or parallel rather attentiveness to coalition building with other workers. And, and there was also, of course, an actual anarchist rabbi that you've written about, Anna, um, Mr. Zalkind, Yank of Mayor Zalkind. Oh, yes. Rabbi, translator of the Talmud, uh, and, a, and a, a, a real anarchist, um, as well as a real rabbi. Um, so maybe a, maybe a conversation for another time. But I just want, I want to return to one of the central themes of your book, um, because it's not primarily a book about political violence, certainly not about sort of bomb throwers and nihilists. 
Um, I want to talk about sort of anarchist ethics and another phrase from your introduction that I uh, that caught my attention, which which was this. Rather than declare that the ends justify the means, anarchists hold that the means must be consistent with the ends. Anarchist practices in the present must reflect the future they aim to create. And that that's so interesting. It seems to me so much to the heart of you know the anarchist um, project and their their bitter differences with the Bolsheviks and and Russian communists for one. Um, Kenyon, do you want to speak to to that? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, as, as you say, that's really at the core of divisions between anarchists and others, particularly varieties of Marxists on on the left, um, is in that question of means and ends with anarchists uh, consistently rejecting the notion that wielding state power, either through being elected democratically or, or seizing it through armed means, um, would somehow become a pathway to sort of universal freedom and equality. Um, and one of the things that I think uh, the across the 10 chapters um, in the volume that we sort of get a, a, a good taste of is the variety of alternative means that therefore um, anarchists looked to. And those range depending on when and where and in which language people were organizing primarily um, from, you know, armed revolutionaries in, you know, 1905 era Russia um, debating about the, the ethics of what they euphemistically called expropriations, um, right? So basically, essentially armed uh, theft to be used to fund the cause um, and armed revolution as well as, as part of that, um, all the way to uh, those who focused on education, on culture, on gradualist evolutionary change, um, in art, in literature, uh, in, in English or Yiddish or German or whatever happened to make the most sense at, at the time, um, through to you know anarcho-syndicalism in, in the form of we have a, a wonderful chapter on the Union of Russian Workers of the United States and Canada, which is this often overlooked uh, federation of Russian-speaking immigrants in North America, but as um, the author of that chapter, Mark Gruder, points out a disproportionate number of the Russian speakers uh, who were prominent in that organization were themselves uh, Jews from within the Russian Empire, um, who organized in conjunction with the industrial workers of the world and with the United Mine Workers and played a very active role in the American labor movement amongst uh, the so-called new immigrants of the early 20th century. Um, and yeah, right. The stereotype of right the bearded bomb throwing anarchist, um, you know, it certainly does come from um, come from somewhere. You know, there were anarchists who were involved in bomb making, including um, some Jewish anarchists, uh, some German anarchists like Johann Most, the the German Im uh, immigrant to the U.S. who played. There's a chapter that uh, examines his sort of formative influence on the early Jewish anarchist movement. Um, but that really is, was always 
a very minor part of what um, anarchist movements were about. You know, I mean, even for those who believed whole wholeheartedly in the ethical justification for either symbolic or retaliatory violence, um, most of what even those people did was not, you know, making bombs in basements. There's only, you know, only so many bombs you can hoard away in your basement, and then you've got other things to do, right, in, in, in pursuit of, of the, the cause. So someone like Johann Most was primarily an editor, a speaker, a writer, an agitator. Um, in fact, it's unclear if, if Johann Most himself ever really touched bombs, although he certainly advocated um, their use in certain situations um, as justified, uh, although not uh, it, eventually he rejected the idea that things like assassinations were a viable topic in a context like the United States, for example. And uh, Ayalet, how does your your interest in the, the newspaper, the Freie Arbeiter Stimme, um, uh, sort of play with your, your general work on gender uh, and the Yiddish press? Um, do, you, do you, I mean, the anarchist movement is full of extraordinary women like Emma Goldman and Rose Passotter and many, many others who defied all sorts of expectations and convention. Um, is, is that something that you explore in your research? Uh, in terms of the Freie Arbeiterstimme, I, I mostly focus on sort of the complications of their gender politics in specific. Uh, so uh, Rosa Lebensboim, who's best known uh, under her pseudonym, her poetry pseudonym, Anna Margolin, got her start in journalism uh, at the Freie Arbeiterstimme when she was quite young. Um, she worked there partly as a secretary and partly as a short story writer, um, but she submitted her short stories under pseudonyms and Yanofsky uh, assumed that they were written by a man because they were so well written, which is a theme that would come up again in her poetry uh, years later, the idea that if her writing was particularly good, it couldn't necessarily have been written by a woman. Uh, and so that was sort of one of the main connections that I was seeing between the Freie Arbeiterstimme and some of the other sort of complexities in terms of gender politics happening in this sphere. But another one is this sort of uh, contradiction or sort of interesting creative tension between the commercial creative and the political sort of ideologies underlying these newspapers. Because this sphere was small and interconnected, even though it was also vibrant and rich, people were writing for uh, publications that didn't necessarily line up with their own political ideologies. And that led to all of these complications in some of these newspapers that meant that they were changing the way that they wrote in order to fit with the ideology of where they were writing. And in other cases, they didn't at all. They just wrote whatever they wanted to write, either in a coded way or not in a coded way. Uh, and that gives you a sense of sort of the sort of difficulty in publishing these publications that are meant to appeal to a specific group, but also to this broader audience that doesn't necessarily have the same exact understanding of anarchism or doesn't necessarily affiliate with anarchism or with whatever other political or religious ideology that the newspaper is focusing on. Um, we could explore these topics endlessly, but I, I think we have to draw it to a close. Uh, and I, so I want to just throw out a final question to to any of you, really, um, but perhaps especially to to Anna or, or Kenyon. Um, your book, 
you know, is a, a set of historical essays that explores the past and does so wonderfully. Um, but I think you also, and you allude to this, you you want it to offer ways of rethinking um, Jewish politics today, Jewish radicalism today, and feed into present day conversations. Yeah, am I right? Uh, yes, you are 100% correct. That was always present in our minds. And I think the minds of our contributors as well. But I, I think, you know, at its most basic level, in order to have any kind of usable past, you've got to know what that past is in order to find what in it is usable. And that was um, one of the primary tasks of, of pulling this together. And Anna? Yes, I think I would certainly describe this as a recovery project, a re recovery project of labor history, a recovery project of the legacy of anarchist thought. Um, we hope that it will uh, be useful for people's political imaginations. And we also hope that readers can maintain a critique of this history as well, uh, that the fact that it's being recovered doesn't mean that we can't also think about uh, where were their political imaginations limited around racial politics or gender or indigenous um, uh, histories as well. So our hope is that recovery is one part of it, but critique is also uh, important for engaging with this um, archival material. And um, we hoped that translation as the uh, Jewish anarchists practiced uh, translation as a form of radical communication with other cultures, we um, hope that archival work is also a kind of labor around accessibility, but one that doesn't hold up this history as untouchable or beyond critique <laughs> for the present reader. Thank you. Uh, thank you all so much. Um, it's a wonderful book with freedom in our ears. Um, you've got to buy it to find out where that quote, that wonderful quote comes from. Um, and thank you so much, Anna, uh, Elena Torres, Kenyon Zimmer, and Ayelet Brin for joining us uh, today. And with that, it's back to Lisa Newman. Thank you all. To have you back again. Thanks, everybody. Thank, thank you so much. You. you have been listening to The Schmooze a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.